uh, in the summer of 1989, I was 16 years old, and I was living the life. First of all, I had a car. I had a 1976 orange Chevrolet Monza with a fake leather top. Isn't that thing sweet? Actually, it wasn't. It was Chevrolet's weak, pathetic excuse for a Mustang. Uh, and uh, yeah, but that was all I could afford. And that summer, I got a job working for my uncle where he paid me $3.25 an hour. I mean, I was raking it in. It was amazing. It was a great summer. However, my hometown was about an hour away from Bellevue, where my aunt and uncle lived. So I lived with them during the week, and I would drive home on the weekends to you know, see my family, see friends. Well, I tried to still be part of my summer swim team that year. And so instead of making an hour drive every day for swim practice, I would just find a local pool, I'd practice there, and then I would drive to our swim meets that were held all around southwest Iowa and southeast Nebraska. Well, on this particular night, our meet was in Sydney, Iowa. So I got off work just a little early, ran home, changed clothes, got some food, and then I made the 45-minute drive down to Sydney. Ended up having a good swim meet, connected with my friends, and then the meet's over. It's about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And my nice, sweet 1976 Ford Mustang excuse, weak, pathetic excuse, needed gas. So I stop at the local Casey's, I fill it up, and then I thought, you know what, I need filled up too. So I go inside and I get the sweet nectar of life called Mountain Dew, get a 32 ounce, I jump in my car, I crank my tunes, and man, I am living my life at 16, heading out 10 o'clock at night, sucking down my caffeine, driving my sweet 1976 orange Chevrolet Monza. Well, this is in 1989, and there were not seatbelt laws passed yet. But I was a good little teenage boy, and I always wore my seatbelt, except on this night. Right as I'm getting outside of town of Sydney, Iowa, as I'm sucking on the straw of my 32-ounce fountain drink, I realize I failed to put on my, my seatbelt. So I set the drink down, I reach back to get it, and right at that moment, two deer decide that they're going on an evening jog and run right across the highway. Now, I did what anyone would do, immediately slammed on the brakes, but in my attempt to slow down, everything slowed down. It was like suddenly everything went into slow motion. And I saw the first lead deer just miss the front right side of the passenger side of my car, while the second deer is putting on her brakes, and my side mirror nicks her ear, and I squeeze right through. Now, you can imagine my heart is going nuts, not because of the caffeine. I immediately finished putting on the seatbelt, as I originally planned, because I thought for a second I was going to have deer crashing through the windshield, and who knew what was going to happen? Because my little dinky 1976 orange Chevrolet Monza probably would not be able to push them away very well. I think they weighed more than the car. And so I immediately started praying and just said, Thank you. Thank you, God, that you protected me. There's a psychology professor by the name of Kevin Ladd. He works at Indiana University, and he's been interested in religion, particularly on the topic of prayer. And so for years, he's been doing research and studies and surveys on this issue. And in his surveys, there have been people who claim to be atheists who've admitted that after moments like I just experienced... They prayed. We find ourselves 
when we're in the moment, when we're about to face something dangerous, or we've come through something dangerous, or we find ourselves in the result of something dangerous, we find ourselves praying. There is an innate desire within us for safety. We want everything around us to be okay. And when it's not okay, we pray. And when suddenly we've come through and it is okay once again, we pray. Today, as we turn to Psalm 124, we're going to hear David talk about coming through something really, really difficult, something that could have been to their destruction, but like me at 16 years old, getting through those two deer, they're going to pray and celebrate. However, what we're going to see is on the surface is this idea that we want safety. But as we dig into this psalm, I'm hoping you'll see that there's actually something far more important, something far deeper. Because I fear if all you do is stop on the topic of safety in our psalm, you're going to miss out on something that's really going to help you in your faith. So, if you've brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Psalm 124, Psalm 124. If you did not bring a Bible with you, we're going to be putting the scripture on the screen because we really want you to be able to read and study along with us. We just strongly encourage you at Riverwood to have a Bible. Now, we don't care if that's a paper Bible or if it's a digital Bible, we just want you to have one. So either stop by our resource table and pick up a copy of the, the paper Bible, and that's our gift to you because we believe that by practicing opening it up here on Sunday, it makes it easier to open it on Monday. We want you to be in the scriptures every day or download a bible to your phone that way wherever you go with your phone you always have a bible available and with you and it's really easy to pull it out we want you to practice putting your thumb on that bible icon and open that up and not just always go into candy crush all right today we're in psalm 124 uh, it's a short psalm so uh, let me read uh, all eight verses aloud as you silently read along if it had not been the lord who was on our side let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird. From the snare of the fowlers, the snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. I think most people in our culture, when they would read this, would see that theme of safety. I would say that our theological take in this world is what I would call the gospel of safety. We long for safety. We, we, we long for, you know, safe neighborhoods. Right, we want our schools safe, our workplaces safe. We want our public spaces safe, you know, get roasted, the pool, the, the baseball fields, the shopping mall, the state parks. And that's why it's always so tragic when we hear of these places that we think should be safe and to hear something happen there. It, it's just deeply disturbing. We long for safety. And so when we read something like 124, and we see how God brought the people through the snare, how he saved them from their enemies. We think, oh, God wants us safe. And so therefore, we think, oh, all I have to do then is believe on God, and he'll keep me from all harm. Now, you're probably sensing a big but 
coming. And, and you're right, it is. But before we get there, let me just put a couple of like, disclaimers on this. First, I, I'm not longing for anarchy. I, I don't want to see our lives devolve into chaos. I, I, I don't want to see war break out. I don't want to see crime run rampant. I don't want to see kids bullied at school. I, I want our neighborhood safe. I'm, I'm just like you. Also, as we talk through this, I don't want you to think that I'm coming to the conclusion that God doesn't care or that God actually intends harm. I, I, I don't believe that at all. We'll talk about this a little more a little bit later, but I believe God actually cares for us. However, what I think most of us do is we fall into this gospel of safety, and by believing in this gospel of safety, we set up our faith to falter and fail. Because you see, what the, the gospel of safety does is it tells us, if you do certain things, God will then do certain things. So if I just live sexually pure enough, God will protect me from divorce. If, if I just live morally enough, he will protect me from getting fired from my job. If, if I just read my Bible enough or I just say the right prayer, he'll keep me safe on vacation. But the problem with that is, is that if this is what you believe about God, if I just do this, he gets me that, what happens when you don't get that? What happens when you find yourself in the dangerous situation? What happens when the deer don't seem to park the ways and your car come through? Now suddenly, has God abandoned me? If, if you do get fired, is God punishing you? If a child ends up being abused by a parent, is God like some negligent parent who doesn't seem to care about the little kid? Thankfully, the gospel of safety is pseudo-Christianity. It, it, it's not real. It's not true. This is not how it operates. Because you see, what the gospel of safety does is it lowers the relationship God wants with you from a personal relationship to a contractional relationship. It means if I do this, you do that. But that's not the kind of relationship God wants with you. Don't believe me? <laughs> Just read the Gospels. And look at Jesus' conversations with the religious leaders of his day. When God instituted the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, the, the law for the Jewish people to enact into their society, God kept warning them, if you do certain things or don't do certain things, there will be natural consequences. And because God loved them, he would discipline them. But what it did is it led them to a place, well, if we do good things, God will do good things, but if we do bad things, God will now do bad things to us. And so this is what the religious people were teaching. The problem was that over and over and over, as God would establish law, they'd break those laws. God would establish foreign law, they'd break those laws. It was proving to them, you can't do it. You want this contractual relationship with God, but you will fail every time. That's why we need Jesus. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he begins to correct this error in their thinking and ends up ultimately fulfilling the law himself. He's the only one to have ever done it perfectly, but then he went and paid the penalty for us by dying on the cross. Because what God wants for you is a personal relationship. He loves you, and he doesn't want you falling into the error of the gospel of safety, and if I just do the right thing, he will protect me from all harm. So what that means is there's something else going on in Psalm 124. There, there's something deeper. We can't just read it and come to this conclusion of, oh, well, God just wants me safe. So what we need to do then is let's go back, let's reread it, but this time let's take off the safety glasses 
And let's put on glasses that says, all right, what is it God wants us to truly see here? So if you still have your Bible open, look again. It's on 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Many of the Psalms we've been looking at in this series have been written by the famous King David. Uh, but most of those Psalms kind of show David's struggle. This one is different in that it is written by David, but it isn't really about him. It's actually a song he's written for all of Israel to sing. It, it, we see the evidence of it right there in verse 1. He says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then it's almost like he, he starts it off and then goes, oh, wait, wait a second, uh, Israel, I, I didn't hear you. Like, I'm writing this song for you. Let all of Israel say. It, as I was working on this on Friday, it reminded me of VBS this past week. Uh, Riverwood participates in the uh, citywide VBS. We partnered with Life Church and Orchard uh, Hill. And if you served at it, thank you so much. Uh, you, you gave the kids an absolutely fantastic week. Um, I got to be a part of Wrecking Games, um, and each night there was a theme, uh, you know, like God is in charge or God is surprising. You know, we're talking about this monumental God. Well, every time you said the night's phrase, like God is in charge, the kids were supposed to yell back, awesome God. But what would happen out at Wrecking Games is the kids would be out there, we'd get done with our game, we'd gather them all together, and then we'd like try and draw the game that we had into the night's theme. And we'd work it to the place where we'd say, so therefore we know that God is in charge. But only like about six kids were paying attention and they'd go, awesome God. And so we'd always go, oh, come on, you guys. You can do better than that. We're outside. Let's let those houses back here hear us. God is in charge. And then you plug your ears because otherwise they're going to start bleeding. I mean, they just yell. It's almost like that's what David's doing. David starts this off. If the Lord had not been on our side, Israel, Israel, I'm about to tell you our story. Sing with me. Let all of Israel say, and he repeats it, if the Lord had not been on our side. That right there tells us that this is not David just singing about his own safety or how God helped his little 1976 Chevrolet Monza escape through two deer. This is about all of Israel. This is a corporate prayer, which means there's something more than just safety. We see it's about their survival. Look down there at verse 3. David says about their enemies, that if their enemies had gotten their way, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. But he doesn't stop with the imagery of them being defeated. He goes on in verse 4. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. He's talking about their very existence as a nation. In other words, he's not just saying, God, thanks you so much for protecting us and keeping us safe. It is, God, thank you for protecting our identity. 
I ultimately think this entire psalm is about identity. Yes, there are themes of safety and protection, of peace, of survival, but really, I think when you boil this psalm down and you really look at it, you see it leads us to the question, okay, so where is my identity found? For Israel, their identity was to be found in God. Look down at verse 8. David says, our help is in the name of the Lord. Notice he didn't say our help is in the power of the Lord, or he didn't say our help is in the reality of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. No, our help is in the name of the Lord. Your name is the leading part of your identity. When someone hears your name, certain things come to their mind. For David, he knows that God's name is the leading part of his identity. God has a reputation. God has fame. God has power. I mean, he's so powerful, he created all of heaven and earth. And that identity of God, David is saying, if we did not have our identity in God, if the Lord had not been on our side, if we were not in union with one another, we'd have been toast. We would have been wiped away. We would have been erased as a nation. So this is really about the only way Israel survived was having their identity in God. Now, David is writing this about 2,000 years before Christmas. We are reading this about 2,000 years after Easter. If David could somehow jump to our side of history, I think he would write that last phrase a little differently. He wouldn't just say, our help is in the name of the Lord. I think he would say, our help is in Christ, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus. Our help is in the gospel. So I believe David is calling us to put our identity, everything that we are, into the gospel. The problem is we live in a culture that is constantly trying to get us to put our identity in something else. Now, when I use the word identity, it's about the way you view yourself and the way other people view you. And our culture is, well, before I say that, all of us have multiple identities, okay? Not because we, we suffer from schizophrenia or anything, but like I, I am a father. I have an identity as a father, but I also have an identity as a husband. Now, those identities are slightly different. Like, like the way I love my wife needs to be different than the way I love my children, Likewise, I, I am a pastor, but I also you know, work out at the W. The people at the W, they see me as a swimmer. They don't see me as a pastor. My friends here, though, many of you see me first as a pastor, and you don't know that three times a week I jump in the water for exercise. Like, you, you have different identities. However, what happens is for many of us, one of those identities percolates to the top, and that becomes the lead. This is how we view ourselves, and it's often how we want other people to view us. And so our culture tries to say you should therefore find your identity in your race or you should find your identity in your gender or you should find your identity in your sexual preferences or in your job or in the kind of car you drive or the clothes you wear or in certain relationships. It, it should be found in your hobby, the, these certain things that you're passionate about, the areas that you've gained a lot of knowledge. That's where your identity should be put. And so we clamor for, because if we just get the right identity and to be true to ourselves, then we will find our full amount of peace. I think David is warning us, though, in Psalm 124 against a misplaced identity. I think David knows because their identity was in God, they were protected. But if they had their identity in anything else, 
it would have had devastating consequences. And so I want to show you three consequences from Psalm 124 of a misplaced identity. The first one we see, we're going to work through Psalm 124 backwards. The first one we see is down in verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We've escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Now, I'm sure that that bird, when it escaped out of the snare, felt a little bit like I did when I squeezed through those two deer. Like, it, it probably felt great. There was joy in the moment. But how do you think the bird felt when it was still trapped in the snare? Probably was filled with fear. It's trying to get free. It wants to get out. But is someone going to come along and, and capture it and kill it? Is its life now going to be stuck in a cage? It would be filled with fear. Likewise, if you have a misplaced identity, if you put your identity in something other than Jesus, you run the risk of leading yourself to fear and insecurity. Let me give you an example. Some of you are parents. If your identity was first and foremost as a parent, then you would not be comfortable letting your child go to a friend's house or go to the park or go do anything else because what if something happens to them? What if they get injured? Like, good parents don't let their children get injured. What, what if, like, something tragic happens and they end up in the hospital? Good parents don't do that. What if they die? And so it fills you with so much fear that you basically wrap your child in bubble wrap and never let them do anything. Because if something happened to them, your identity is now ruined and you're living in fear. Or continue with this idea. Let's say you're at the grocery store. You want your identity to be that of a good parent. But your child is acting like many other children. They're low on sleep. They're not feeling the best. They're wanting something. So they start creating a ruckus. They start crying in the middle of the store. And you feel like this makes everyone else around you think, man, you are a horrible parent. How could you let your child act like that? And you're so embarrassed, you feel so insecure because good parents don't have children who act like this. Good parents have children who are perfect models of behavior and they are sweet to everybody around them. And you, so you're, you're insecure and you flee the store because you don't want to be embarrassed anymore. If you have a misplaced identity, you run the risk of having yourself find, end up in fear and insecurity. There's a second thing that David points out to us. And that is, if you have a misplaced identity, it could lead you to confusion. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Anyone here seen the movie The Impossible? It's about 10 years old now. It uh, stars Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, the woman who King Kong fell in love with, and baby Spider-Man. Um, actually, I think Tom Holland's about 12 years old, but still, they're Spidey. Uh, it, it's a good film, but it's an intense film. Uh, it's a true story about a family who goes down to uh, Thailand for Christmas. And on Boxer Day, the day after Christmas, a tsunami hits. The, the famous Boxer Day tsunami of 2004 killed over 200,000 people and displaced one and a half million people. And this family happened to be there on vacation now, the movie is called The Impossible because it is the impossible story of not, not only how they all survived, but the waves caused them to get completely separated and the way they were able to find each other. 
But the reason it was so difficult for them to find one another again is because after that tsunami hit, everything was in complete chaos. Like, the, the, just watching the film, you see the devastation from these waves. And then you see the, the dad getting to the hospital trying to look for his wife. And, and it, I mean, it, just, there's patients outside. They don't have enough beds. Governments are trying to get involved, and they don't know exactly how to go after this. Like, it was absolute and utter confusion. Likewise, if your identity is in something else and you get hit by a wave, you will find yourself in confusion. For instance, if you find your identity in a certain relationship and suddenly that relationship breaks, you end up in divorce or they sadly die, suddenly that relational tsunami causes you to go into absolute confusion. You don't understand. You find yourself praying, God, why are you letting this happen? You're confused. Or maybe your identity is in your job. Suddenly, an economic wave comes, and, and, and they're laying people off, and you're one of the casualties. Suddenly, you're confused. Like, how in the world? Like, this is who I am. This is what I'm good at. This is where I find fulfillment and peace. And now it's been taken, and you're confused. But I think Psalm 124 tells us a third thing. Up in verse 3, I think it shows us that a, a, a misplaced identity leads to a complete loss of identity. Verse 3 says that then they, meaning their enemies, would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. I want you to imagine for a moment that hidden behind Jake's stand here, I pulled out a little silver-wrapped drop, and there's a little tag sticking out, and I asked you to identify it. Most of you would say, that's a Hershey's Kiss. Oh, well done. But if I gave you the Hershey Kiss, would you just take it home, put it on the shelf as a decoration, and go, that's the Hershey Kiss that Aaron gave me at Riverwood one Sunday? No. You would open that baby up, and you'd pop it in your mouth and obliterate it. Like, you would chew it up and swallow it. By the way, I just got to let you know, Hershey Kisses are not true chocolate, all right? As your friend and your pastor, you can do better, okay? Okay, clearly there are some people who don't agree with me. Um, but anyway, you've eaten it. My point is, as soon as you swallow that Hershey Kiss, what is its identity? It has no more identity. It's gone. You've swallowed it. Likewise, David is saying that if their enemies had swallowed them, defeated them, they would be no more. They would have no more identity. That can happen when you have your identity placed in the wrong thing. Because when that tsunami hits, you don't just get filled with fear. You don't just find yourself confused. Sometimes you feel like you've lost yourself. And you no longer know who you are. This is why David is reminding the people, calling them, to put their identity in something that doesn't change. So that no matter what would happen to Israel, no matter what would happen to you, your identity would remain. Because God is consistent, he is eternal. And again, if David came to our side of history, I think he'd be calling us to the gospel. So what is your primary identity in? Is it in being a parent? Is it in your job? Is it in your finances? Is it in your gender? Or is it in Jesus? Okay, Aaron, that sounds all great, but how do you do this? 
Like, how do you go about cultivating a Jesus-centered identity? Well, good question. Glad you asked. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul tells us. If you know where the book of Colossians are, feel free to flip over there. If you don't, don't worry about it. We'll be putting it on the screen in a moment. We're going to study the book of Colossians here in a couple of weeks. Uh, start there. But, quick synopsis. Paul made, uh, wrote two letters to churches he didn't plant. Most of the churches that he planted, he actually... I'm mean, sorry, most of the churches he wrote letters to, he planted. There were two, though, that he did not. The church in Rome, but he eventually made it to Rome as a prisoner, not a church planter, but he did get to Rome, and the church in Colossae. Colossae was a small village, basically. It was a couple out, I mean, probably about a day's walk from the city of Ephesus. And some believers that had come to know Christ through the church plant that Paul did in Ephesus had somehow made their way back to Colossae. They shared the gospel, and a church is planted. Word travels to Paul. He gets so excited, he's got to write him a letter. But he wants to make sure they understand this gospel that they put their faith in. There are so many false ideas going around. So he wanted to help shore up their faith, to make it firm. So in chapter 1, he starts sharing the gospel. He just starts reminding them who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's where you get this absolute beautiful poem in, in, in chapter 1. And, and in there, he says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And he gave his life for you. And when you put your faith in him, your sins were washed away. But God's not done with you. He wants to mature you. And that's at the end of chapter 1. He's like, God wants to mature you, making you mature in Christ. The way we put it at Riverwood is out there on our wall. God wants you to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. But then as he gets into chapter 2, he's saying, so therefore, here's how to make your identity in Christ. Here's how to get this union tighter. Here's how to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And he says it in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, that the way that the Colossians received Jesus, the gospel, that's the way they're to continue with Jesus the gospel. By continuing through the gospel, continuing to follow Jesus, they will become rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. In other words, they're going to have their identity put into Christ. And as they have this union with Christ, they will just naturally begin to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So if, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus... I invite you to make today your spiritual birthday, to make today the day that you received the gospel. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he rose again from the dead, and you put your faith completely in this story. But I realize many of you, you've already done that. Well, the good news is, continue with how it began. Continue with the gospel. Now, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, and let's just pretend that you have the joy of seeing one of your close friends or maybe a family member, a coworker, someone, they've been asking you a lot of spiritual questions, you've been answering them and they come to this place where they realize the gospel is true and you get the joy of praying with them as they commit their life to Christ. I've had that moment several times in my life. It is awesome. It is wonderful. I, hope, I wish God would let me have that, that like moment time after time. So I want you to imagine that you're there with them you guys just get done praying. They say amen. They look up at you and they say, so what do I do now? What advice do you give them? Anyone, what advice do you give? Read your Bible, okay? Usually one of the first things, read your Bible. Good, what else? Pray, 
Yeah, develop this relationship with God. Remember, it's not contractual. It's personal. He wants to talk with you. Right? The public seemed to have all the answers. Max, what did you... You rose your hand. What, what else? What? You did... Okay, that's right. No, no, no problem. We got we to share, share the answers with everyone, Max. That's okay. That's okay. Anna. Find community. Okay, get involved in a church. Get involved in a small group. Like, like build relationship with other believers who are going to help disciple you in your faith, who you're going to have an influence upon. Yes. Anything else? Okay, trust and surrender. Daily thing, continuing to give your life over. Just as you began in trusting and surrendering, you continue with trust and surrender. Also, I've heard some people throw on like serve. Get involved. Like God's made you to be a blessing. So, so find a way to be a blessing to other people. So if this is the advice you give someone who's just put their faith in Jesus, that this is how their journey with Jesus begins, why wouldn't we then just continue in it? It's so simple. It it feels something for kids. It's so basic. And yet Paul is saying that just as you came to Christ and began this relationship with him, continue in it, walk in it. Because just doing these small little daily mundane things will get you rooted and built up. You'll become more like Christ, and your identity will be tied to him. Because when you're rooted, when you're in that firm foundation, then when the waves come, when the winds blow, when you find yourself not miraculously coming through the deer, instead you find yourself in the ditch, when you find yourself with the, 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 the job ending, when you find the relationship over, when you find your bank account empty, when you find yourself in the crisis moment, deep down, nothing's changed. Yeah, on the surface, it might look like chaos. It might look like something where you, you find yourself filled with fear, but deep down you have a peace that surpasses understanding because your relationship with your eternal God has not changed. I think David wanted this for the Israelites, and I want this for you. So tomorrow, open up your Bible. Have a conversation with God. Let someone else into your life And just continue to do these very basic things and watch God change the world. Because he wants more for you than just your safety. He wants you in union with him. So Heavenly Father, I just pray you would take this 35-minute message and you'd make it a reality in our lifetime. That we would live this out day, day in, day out. That your gospel would become the absolute center of who we are. That we would be Jesus-centered people. But God, we cannot do this in our own strength and power. We've tried so often to to enter into this transactional relationship with you. God, I pray that you'd help us to not read our Bible out of duty, that we'd read it with joy because we get to know you. That we wouldn't pray a prayer because we think it's what you, you call us to do as a have to, but it's a get to. We get to come into the presence of a perfect holy God. We get to approach your throne of grace with confidence. God, that, that we wouldn't just come to church on a Sunday because it's what we do as good Americans or somehow it'll appease an angry God. That instead we come here not only because we're going to learn from the scriptures and we're going to have a chance to sing to you, but we get to be with other believers. God, help us to structure our, our days and our time that we would be meeting one-on-one or in growth groups to allow you to use other people to help us become more like Jesus as you use us to help others become like Christ. God, help us to get to just these really simple things, to do these daily disciplines, not out of duty, but out of joy. 
Because God, I believe you want to do something great in us so you can do something great through us. God, I long for Riverwood Church to be a people who are such a blessing to their world that people can't help but remark that there's something different and they find themselves not drawn to us as individuals, not just drawn to Riverwood as a church, they're drawn to Jesus. Because you, God, loved them so much, you did not want them to be separated from you by sin. You came into this world, Jesus, to live the only sinless life that's ever been lived, but you went and died in the sinner's place upon the cross. And by absorbing the, the penalty, by taking it all, you freed us like that bird from the snare. We have escaped from our sin, and we are now free to enter into this relationship with you. So God, I pray for the person that, that's here in person or joining online or listening to the podcast during the week who has not put their faith in you, that they would hear you calling that they'd put their identity in you first and foremost, and that that would change them at the absolute deepest fundamental level of their lives. That they would go from spiritual death into spiritual life. They'd go from being a spiritual orphan to becoming your child. That they would go from the darkness into your light. God, I pray for my brother or sister in Christ who at one time knew this truth. They put it in it, but they've allowed the things of life to distract them they find themselves simply praying for safety and they haven't been longing for you. Would you just raise up that hunger again? Help them to long for you above all other things. God, I do pray that you would keep us safe. I do pray that you would protect us physically, emotionally, mentally. I believe you can do it. I believe you delight to do it. God, sometimes we simply want that instead of wanting you. So I just pray that in these next holy moments of communion, you would shake those things away. You'd purify our desires. And we would delight in you and you alone because our help comes from the name of the Lord. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.